What's it like being a woman TV writer in Hollywood? Nell Scovell will be here to tell us about her memoir, Just the Funny Parts. What makes the workplace different for women than it is for men? Joanne Littman will talk about her new book, That's What She Said. Plus, our critics Carl Sagel and Jen Salai will join us to talk about the new vanguard in women's fiction. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Nell Scovell joins us now to talk about her new memoir, Just the Funny Parts, and a few hard truths about sneaking into the Hollywood Boys Club. Nell, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. So you have this very nifty thing in your book, which is a job timeline, which tells us exactly everything that you have done in your career. And I won't make you go through the entire thing, but tell us a little bit and also about why you decided to put that timeline in. The timeline is there because so much of what Hollywood writers do doesn't get produced. So if you go to my IMDb page, they will only list produced projects. And that's maybe a third of what I've actually worked on. That's very clever because I, you know, you hear that from people in Hollywood all the time that you can be fully employed and have nothing to show for it. So much of what I've done never got made. I've, I've written a pilot a year, probably for the past 20 years. Um, and, you know, I think I've shot five and one made it to the air, which was Sabrina the Teenage Witch. But, uh, you know, one of the stories I tell in the book is about a pilot idea I did some years ago for ABC, and it came from Terry Hatcher, who was the star of Desperate Housewives, and at the height of her career, they gave her a production deal. And she actually had a really, I thought, very smart idea to do a story about a woman who looks at her horoscope each morning and realizes that it's coming true and then decides to adjust her life based on that horoscope. And it was called Mercury Rising. And I really liked the idea. And we pitched a pilot episode that the network bought. And it was based on this idea that her horoscope that morning said, um, don't make any big decisions. And at dinner that night, her boyfriend proposes. So she's thrown in, you know, to the quandary of, you know, I'm not supposed to make any big decisions, and he's waiting for an answer. Um, anyway, I write the pilot. We turn it in. It goes up the ladder to the president of ABC, who passes on the project. And the word comes back to me through my agent that they passed because they didn't like the horoscope idea. So I'm floored because. The thing that made it go in the first place was the thing that killed it in the end. And I called up my really good friend, a writer named Rob Bragan. We worked together at Murphy Brown. And I told him the story, and he listened. And after, he summed up Hollywood in one sentence, which was, there's nothing to be learned from that. Is there nothing to be learned from that? (laughs) Well, you know, William Goldman famously said, you know, in Hollywood, nobody knows anything. So I actually think it might even go a step further, which is, you know, you you can't know. And it's such a lottery. One of the things that I feel like this job timeline then does is if people look at it, they, they might find unaired, shot but unaired, pilot bought but unshot, and then think like, well, that actually sounds like a good idea. And you might get some some revived work off of this job timeline. And one of the ironies is that I think the first unshot pilot in your timeline is called Funny Girls. Well, this was decades before 30 Rock, and it it was a very similar premise. It it was set in late-night comedy show, and the focus was on a partnership, two women who are lower level than Liz Lemon, but who work for a very egotistical host of the show, And I believe in the pilot, one partner's discovered she's pregnant. This was also long before Lean In, and I was really trying to explore that whole concept of what's it like to try to 
have both a job and a family. The way we're talking, it makes it sound like you were not actually successful in television, but in fact, you are quite successful in TV. You ended up working on shows from Late Night with David Letterman to Murphy Brown to Sabrina the Teenage Witch, you mentioned earlier, to The Simpsons. You started off as a very unglamorous journalist, or at least relative to TV writing, it feels unglamorous, working for, I guess, relatively glamorous magazines such as Spy Magazine and and Vanity Fair. How did you make the leap from journalism to television? Well, I was was very happy as a journalist. I think it's so much fun. If you're a curious person, it's, it's a terrific job. And one day I bumped into an old spy editor on the street, just complete coincidence, and as we, we caught up, and then as we were saying goodbye, she said to me, Nell, I don't mean this as an insult, but I think you could write for television. And it was the first time it had occurred to me. I grew up in New England, and I didn't know anyone who worked in, in Hollywood. In fact, I wasn't even really aware that people wrote for TV. So I started asking around and learned that a friend of a friend was actually doing that. And he put me in touch with an agent who read some of my spy magazine stuff and and agreed that I could do this. So I sat down and wrote an episode of It's Gary Shandling's show Mm -hmm. on SPAC. And what was it like? as a woman entering this business in 1987? Because that's a lot about of what your book is about, is what this was like in such a, a male-centric or male-dominated field. Well, I tried to hide my gender as much as I could. You know, I didn't want to be seen as a female writer. I really didn't want to call attention to myself at all. How are you treated? Oh, well, it's... You know, it, when I started writing this memoir, you know, it, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, you know, this is good. I'll get back at all the people who didn't treat me well. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but the truth That's is... That's the early stage. That's the first stage of memoir writing. Then you got to stage two. It is two. the first stage. <laughs> stage two is, oh, it's so much nicer to give credit to the people who were good to you than spend time pointing out the people who weren't. And in fact, I had this T-shirt made I ha- that I haven't had the guts to wear in public, but it says, I'm writing a memoir and you're not in it. <laughs> so now I feel like we're getting to stage three of memoir writing. <laughs> um, no, but it's so, like, I love crediting Barry Kemp, who created Coach and New Heart, who was just the fairest boss, who really taught me how to write sitcom. He's the one who gave me the advice that writing is not an act of creation. It's an act of discovery. And that really changed how I I wrote and the idea that you can start a scene and not know exactly where it's going and just find your way through. And if you you hit a wall, you just go back Mm -hmm. and, and, and try a different path. And then that just was eye-opening. So you then took a very unexpected turn, although I guess in a way it seems like everyone in TV also actually really wants to write books. But you co-wrote a book with Sheryl Sandberg, now coming on its fifth anniversary. Its title will be familiar to people, Lean In. <laughs> How did that come about? And did that arise from your own personal experience? People always say, how did you meet Sheryl Sandberg? You know, she's in Silicon Valley or in down in L.A., and then when I tell them, they always go, oh, of course. So we met through Facebook. Oh, wow. I thought you were (laughs) going to say you met in, like, the women's bathroom. (laughs) No. So I I was actually a very early adopter of Facebook, back when you needed an EDU address. And one of the people I reconnected with early was a guy named Elliot Schreg, who was director of communications for Facebook. And a part of the story, which a lot of people don't know, which I tell in just the funny parts, is I started writing for Mark Zuckerberg first. 
because they, the, as his profile was rising, he'd be asked to go on Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. and I would help come up with, with jokes for him. And then one day, Elliot sent me an email saying, have you watched Sheryl Sandberg's TED Talk? And I wrote back, watched it, I memorized it. Hmm. And I actually had sent her a friend request after watching it, and it had gone unanswered. But after I sent this message to Elliot, I think five minutes later, I saw a little flag, Sheryl Sandberg has accepted your friend request. (laughs) I got on her radar And uh, it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. How did the actual writing of the book sort of come to be? And what was that experience like? And and did you expect it to have the impact that it did? Well, it started with me collaborating on speeches Mm -hmm. with her. And and the first one we worked on was a Forrestal lecture that she gave at Annapolis. And in the book, I include this note that she had sent me because she had an outline and it said, tell women to lean in. (laughs) And it was the first time that she actually used that phrase. And she's actually a wonderful writer, but she was running a company and had two small children. So, you know, I would help fill out the ideas and smooth things. And we're both iterators. You know, we're both kind of type A good girls. So we, we would send these speeches back and forth 40 times with little adjustments and push each other, you know, sort of challenge each other, ask questions, you know, is this the best way or, you know, is there a statistic that backs this up? So it was just a true collaboration. And then we worked on the Barnard commencement address, which was really the foundation for Lean In. And when she got an offer for a book, she called me up and she was very excited and she said, um, I told the publisher I wouldn't do it without you. And I said, but Cheryl, I've never written a book. And she said, neither have I. (laughs) So in a way, we we leaned in, you know, it was kind of proof of concept. Well, so then it's interesting because you go back and you actually write about your own career, having written Lean In and then going back and kind of reexamining your own trajectory, did you feel like, oh, wow, I, I, I did lean in or I didn't? Or how did it look in the, through the lens of, of this earlier book? Well, one of the things Cheryl has said is that the most important career decision a woman makes is who her partner is. So I nailed that one. Like I, I, my husband is what made it, it, my career possible he um, offered to stay home with the kids. He didn't do it begrudgingly. He did it happily. He was very good at it. <laughs> and so that allowed me to, you know, at times go off for six weeks to direct a movie. So I did that right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and where I failed was I was terrible at negotiations. I really thought that if you were in a negotiation by rattling off all you had done for the show and the ways that you had made it a success, that that would be recognized and rewarded. Well, as it turns out, women are expected to be communal and nurturing and maternal And what you're supposed to do in a successful negotiation is to go in and say, I love being part of this team. (laughs) And because I think I had spent most of my career surrounded by men, I adopted a lot of their attitude Mm -hmm. towards these things. Now, men can go in and just say, you know, I'm awesome. You should double my pay and um, get away with it. And when you're a woman, you can't. You should just be grateful. Yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so, and of course, you know, there's this question of do you play the game or not? And, you know, we, where we landed and lean in is, well, play the game until we have more women in leadership positions. And then we can make a more level playing field and eliminate those games. 
So you've written this memoir. Are you going back to TV or are you still working in television? I wrote a pilot for CBS this year called Trophy Sister that did not get made. But I would love to write more for TV. It's, you know, I've done it for so long. It's, it's by far the easiest kind of writing for me. And I'd love to direct another movie. So easier than writing a memoir. Oh, so much easier. (laughs) (laughs) What was the hardest thing about writing this memoir? Lin-Manuel Miranda gave a a wonderful commencement speech at UPenn a couple of years ago. And he said, the art of choosing the stories we tell versus the stories we leave out will reverberate across the rest of your life. So this is called Just the Funny Parts. I really tried to focus on a lot of the good stuff. But yeah, there, there's disappointment along the way. And, and you have to consider that. Well, then that sets you up very well for a follow-up memoir, which can be just the unpleasant parts. <laughs> I have joked that I should write just the angry and bitter parts, but it's an <laughs> eight-volume set. All right. Coming up next from Nell Scovell. Nell, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. This was fun. Nell's new book is called Just the Funny Parts and A Few Hard Truths About Sneaking Into the Hollywood Boys Club. Joanne Littman is here now to talk about her new book, That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Joanne, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So you have worked in journalism for a long time, a long time at the Wall Street Journal, then the founding editor of Portfolio Magazine, most recently at the head of USA Today and Gannett. Did some of this book, I'm assuming, come out of personal experience? So the genesis of the book is because, actually, I did spend most of my career, the first 22 years of my career, was at the Wall Street Journal. I was surrounded by men. My colleagues primarily were men, the people we were writing about, and all of my mentors were men. And they were really, really good guys. On the other hand, we have so many issues that women face at work that we talk about amongst ourselves all the time. Issues like feeling marginalized and not respected as much as the man sitting next to us, interrupted, our ideas appropriated by a man. And we talk about these issues all the time amongst ourselves, but what we haven't done is talk to men. And my feeling is that women talking to each other is half a conversation, Mm -hmm. which at best gets you to half a solution. And so I wrote, that's what she said, because I felt like we need to bring men into this conversation. We need to tell them what the issues are, but also look for solutions. And so for the book, what I actually did is I crisscrossed the country. I spent three years on it. Seeking out primarily men, business executives, Mm -hmm. who really were trying to close the gap so that I could talk with them about, you know, what did they learn? What were mistakes they made? What are best practices that we could actually take away from what they've done so that things that we can all put into effect immediately, right? Were these conversations all in the record? I have to ask because you wonder, like, everyone knows what they're supposed to say, right, about this, especially men in the workplace. But then I'm wondering if they have other things to say that they know they're not allowed to say. Yeah, I mean, I had conversations on the record and off the record. I also delved into the research. I, I wanted to, to to tell real stories in the book. So you'll see stories about Iceland, about Harvard Business School, about Tupperware. You know, there's a real storytelling element that that brings out the research and brings out the lessons that we can learn from it. But behind that, there's lots and lots and lots of reporting. There's about 50 pages of research notes in the back. All right. You said Iceland, and I have to follow up on that immediately because it feels like everything, for some reason, functions better in those northern countries. What's the Iceland story? So I went to um, Iceland because Iceland is the number one country in the world for gender equality, according to the World Economic Forum. As suspected. Okay. (laughs) So I went there because I wanted to know what does that feel like, right? And It was fascinating because Iceland has only been the number one country in the world since after 2008. And as I as I document and that's what she said, that was no accident that date. What happened was in Iceland after the financial crisis in the U.S., as we know, there really weren't that many repercussions. People held on to their jobs, the heads of the banks. Nobody went to jail. 
In Iceland, there are three banks. All three heads of the banks were fired. They were sent to jail. The government was toppled. Two of the three banks were replaced by female heads. Mm -hmm. And the government was replaced by a female prime minister who then went and basically led an effort to feminize an entire nation. She actually brought in a couple of uh, gender studies professors from the University of Iceland to study why did Iceland crash so hard after the financial crisis. And the conclusion basically was an excess of testosterone Hmm. that— Iceland, which has this history of very, very macho history, they're Vikings and they're conquerors and marauders. And they they even talked about, you know, their banking because they, it was a bunch of fishermen and farmers who all became hedge fund managers and bankers. And they took crazy, crazy risks, which is why they crashed so hard. But what's very interesting was that there was the support of men as well as women. Hmm. Everyone in Iceland, I will tell you, every single person I spoke to there said that they don't believe they really are number one for gender equality. And if they are, it just shows you just how far we have to go in the world to reach true gender equality. But I would say the big difference to me in in how does it feel there to be a woman is that both the men and the women felt that the women are not being treated fairly. And the men, these big, burly men would like bang the table and say, of course I am a feminist, right? These Just like they do here. Yeah. (laughs) And there's no, unlike here, there's nothing politicized about the word feminist Hmm. in Iceland. It's just like saying I'm a human. An interesting part of what you're saying is about this idea of like women being brought in at the top. And in this situation that you described, this is one in which these industries, you know, were in a troubled situation. And there's a perception that, at least at the top, that sort of the women are brought in and there's some kind of reason, some kind of ulterior motive. It's a troubled company, and so they bring in a woman. Or it's a troubled industry, and so they bring in a woman, they could pay her less. And I'm curious if you think that that is, if there's a reality to that, or if it's a perception. That is an absolute reality. It's not a perception. It is actually a reality. There's been research done. When women are offered a CEO job, it is much more likely that the company is in trouble. Almost half of companies companies are in trouble when women are offered the CEO position, which is far, far, far more than the situation for men. The other piece of this is when a company is in trouble and it is headed by a female CEO, 80% of press reports blame the female CEO, Mm -hmm. whereas only a minority of press reports blame the CEO if it is a man. Interesting. Yeah. It's and you know, the 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 idea that women get the top job when a company is in trouble has been studied extensively. There's a there's a phrase for it, it's called the glass cliff, because it happens so frequently. And then when the women fail, the failure is attributed to the women. You know, another interesting piece that goes into this, Fortune magazine actually studied, it has its most powerful women list. And it it studied what happens when a woman falls off the most powerful women list because she's left her job or lost her job. And they found that only 13% of these high-powered women were able to find comparable jobs, which is very different than the situation for men. So you mentioned early on that you wrote this book for men, most explicitly, although, of course, women will read it, too, because many of the conversations around this happen among women. One of those conversations is often about pay and pay as it relates to a woman's typical trajectory and getting at that work-life balance and and the conversations that, that people have around taking time off and what that means. And it seems like it's very different the way that women will talk about it, you know, that, oh, I got penalized when I got pregnant for the third time or I came back from maternity leave and they'd sort of, you know, taken my job down several notches while I was gone or they didn't take me as seriously or I didn't get a job because I came into the interview when I'm 28 weeks pregnant and you could see. And I'm curious when you were going around talking to men, what it is that they said about those situations and what their perception is. So what's really important to know is that a lot of what we're seeing here is unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. So that, that is biases, prejudices that we have so deep inside of us that we don't even know they exist. 
men have them, but so do women. So we, we all have them. You can actually test your unconscious bias. Projectimplicit.net, I believe, is the site. I went and tested my own for working women, mm-hmm. and I failed. I came out as moderately biased against working women. We all have this. So it's something that we all have to be aware of and then fight against. Another piece of this is that women are often told, you know, okay, you're paid less. Well, demand to be paid what you are worth. And there's a whole bookshelf of of books that tell us this, right? Mm -hmm. You should be paid what you're worth. Well, my research suggests that women often don't know what we're worth. One of the most interesting studies, and that's what she said, involves first graders and Hershey Kisses. So first graders were asked to do a simple task and then to set their own pay in Hershey Kisses. At six years old, the boys pay themselves more Hershey Kisses than the girls. Wow. They repeat this experiment in middle school and high school, this time with money. And at every age, the boys pay themselves more than the girls, as much as 78%. So what this does is by the time we even reach college— It's already baked into us that women are worth less than men. And not only that, it then translates into both the pay gap that we see, because that that pay gap starts almost immediately Mm -hmm. with our first jobs. But it also translates into some of these multiple other issues where women's contributions are valued less, which is why, for example, women are interrupted three times more frequently than men. A lot of women think that that's just their problem, that they get interrupted a lot. It's not. It is a legitimate problem experienced by virtually all women. Northwestern actually did a study of the Supreme Court of the United States and found that the female Supreme Court justices are interrupted three times more frequently than male Supreme Court justices. Another thing you'll hear, and again, some of this I think is is probably discussed more among women than it is with men, is the women will say, well, I'm supposed to negotiate, but I don't know what the man who had this job made because we are so secretive around salary. And perhaps you're saying that because these women then value themselves less, they're lowballing what they think the appropriate salary is. Yeah, that's one element of it. The other piece of it is that the research also tells us that while women are actually as effective or more effective than men at advocating on behalf of someone else, that they are less effective at advocating on their own behalf. And the reason is that when women speak with pride about their accomplishments, they are penalized for it. They are seen as abrasive. Mm -hmm. Demanding. uh, Demanding, you know, irrational, emotional, Uh, All of those words that are all code words for female, whereas men who talk about their accomplishments with pride are rewarded for it. So, you know, I I talk a lot about, and that's what she said, we we really wanted to get to solutions. So we talk a lot about what are potential solutions for this. And, you know, one of the solutions that came from a consulting firm where the women— felt like they they were not being heard and they were not being recognized. And, you know, they came up with a, a strategy that they call brag buddies, mm-hmm. which is I tell you my achievements, you tell me your achievements, and then we go and brag about the other to our bosses. And the reason is, again, women are just, we are very effective at advocating for other people. The argument you often hear about the absence of women at the top, in the top ranks, whether it's on boards or in the executive ranks, is that, well, there's no pipeline. But when you look at the statistics of the number of women who go into business school or go into law school especially, it is at parity or near parity. Like, what happens? Right, right. So the pipeline argument is BS, as we'll say in a G-rated That's right. On a New York Times podcast, that's what we do. Um, the pipeline theory just doesn't work. If the pipeline theory held, think about this. The average CEO of an American company is a 55-year-old man. That means that he graduated about 30, 30, a couple over, you know, 30, 32 years ago, which is when women became half of all college undergraduates. So if the pipeline theory held, 50% of all CEOs would now be female instead of about 5.6%. So what's happening is that a a big piece of this is the unconscious bias. There's some outright sexism. So Rice University actually did a really interesting computer model where they created a company 
That's 50-50 male-female at the entry level. And then they programmed in a 1% bias against women, which is almost imperceptible. Mm -hmm. By the time you get to the top level of that company, it's 65% male. Hmm. So a big piece of this is unconscious bias that is, you know, at every level, McKinsey and Lean In did this research, women are 15% less likely than men to be promoted at every level. There's another theory that also is wrong, that, that there's a theory that it's because women step back. They, they reach their 30s, they get married, they have children, their focus is elsewhere. Harvard Business School actually tracked 30 years of its own students, and it found a career gap mm-hmm. among its graduates, among men and women, regardless of whether the women chose to get married or to have children. It didn't matter. You also hear that kind of explanation when people talk about the pay gap of like, why is it still 77 cents to the dollar or whatever? Is that the current 77 cents still? Or There's a variety of ways to look at it, but yeah, approximately. Rough, roughly speaking, and, and they'll be like, well, it's because women will opt to take part-time jobs or women will take time out and it's averaged over a period of years or women will opt to take the sort of less demanding jobs. Is that true? No, that is not true. There, there is an unexplained gap that is, it's it's not 20%, but some something less than that, a completely unexplained gap that has no reason that there doesn't have to do with career choice. It doesn't have to do with hours worked. And a piece of this is if you look at how men versus women are compensated and what they ask for. So there was research a few years ago that found that men are four times more likely to negotiate for a higher salary mm-hmm. than women. And that when women do ask for a raise, they ask for 30% less than men do. There's been some more recent studies that say that women are now aware of this. And so women are now more on par with men in asking for raises, but they are less successful in getting them. Hmm. So one of the things that I learned and that changed, again, my own management style was that, you know, it's not enough. Uh, as a, I've been a manager for a long time, and I always felt like I was really great at advocating for my people. But I realized it's not enough to say, hey, I got this woman a great raise. I got her 10% raise. If you, what, what you need to do is actually line up your employees, your team, and, and look at men versus women, look at other underrepresented groups, which is also incredibly important here, to make sure that you're paying equally across the board, you know, for, for equal contributions. And, and I should add, by the way, that that's what she said, focuses on women, but so much of the research I cite has to do with any other underrepresented group. It's interesting hearing you say the title of your own book because there's so many ways that you could say it because I read it as that's what she said. Uh-huh. <laughs> but of course, it, it it you could work it many, many, many ways. You mentioned harassment earlier, and it's hard to have a conversation about women in the workplace right now without talking about sexual harassment. But what I'm interested in asking is less about sort of the sexual harassment in and of itself and more of the connection between that harassment and everything else you're talking about here because the way that conversation has been happening and in, 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 to a certain extent has been like, well, this is the really bad outlier, terrible behavior. And yet it has to exist in this larger context in yes. some way. It doesn't feel like it's just the extreme. So I guess the, the question is, how do you see sexual harassment as fitting into this bigger picture? Yes. I'm so glad you brought that up. That that is, That's what she said is a everything we're talking about creates the environment that enables the sexual harassment, the sexual assault at the extreme. Another way of looking at this is that if you have an organization that has turned a blind eye to the the sexual assault and harassment, the most extreme of that behavior, you can be sure you have an organization that is not valuing women in other ways, Mm -hmm. that you are likely to have an organization where women are not being paid or promoted or given the same opportunities as men are. And it's really, really important because you hear too often this thought that, well, we just have to cut out those bad guys mm-hmm. and everything will be fine. Right. That's 100% wrong, right? This is what we're talking about are systemic issues that go, you know, from entry level and all the way up through your organization and that, that really impact everyday lives of women at work and of the relationship between men and women at work. And that's what we have to focus on, right? If we only look at the extreme, we're really not going to, to, you know, Me Too isn't going to get us where we need to go. All right. Very big question to end with. 
if you had a magic wand and you were able to kind of make one major change in the workplace to improve the situation for working women, what would it be? Well, speaking very broadly, and this is what that's what she said is about, it's about bringing men into the conversation. And the men who I interviewed in the course of, of writing the book, and I interviewed hundreds of people, these are guys who really would like to be part of the solution. What I hope that the impact of that's what she said will be is to make all of these issues discussable in mixed company so that then we can get to solutions. As I said at the outset, women talking to each other is half a conversation. That gets us to half a solution. Let's bring in the men. Let's take away the fear because mm -hmm. a lot of them are afraid to talk about it. Let's let them know what the issues are because many of them don't know what the issues are. And let's make this discussable in mixed company so that we can finally come together and that will actually close the gap. That'll move the needle and that will have an impact. All right. All men should be Icelandic Vikings is the <laughs> answer. Joanne, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Joanne Littman is the author of That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Joining us now, two of our critics, Pearl Sagal and Jen Salai. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. Hey, Pamela. So we didn't actually kick Dwight Garner out of this conversation. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Women he, only. He couldn't make it, but it is a little bit appropriate that we are talking about what we've called or you've called the new vanguard, which are not uh, the authors themselves, but books by women that, as you put it, are shaping the way we read and write fiction in the 21st century. So before we get into the 15 books and what they are. Let's just talk about this concept and how did you come up with it? We were thinking about just n fiction and newness and the direction that fiction seems to be going in. And, you know, we sat down, we emailed, we we talked a lot about choosing an angle that felt interesting and felt accurate. And we settled on the new vanguard. But I think for all of us, it's plural. It's vanguards. Like, I think we wanted to have a way of talking about now without reducing the moment to one particular kind of fiction or style or school of thought. So we wanted it in as much as a list can ever be capacious mm -hmm. to feel open and to feel like these are writers from different countries and working in different ways and moving in all kinds of directions. So it's like pushing lots yeah, of boundaries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and anybody who like has read these kinds of lists or made this kinds of lists, like knows what a thankless task it is. Like even now when I'm looking at it, I just feel like it feels blasphemous to me. I'm like, where are the 11 people that we also wanted on the list? Right. But for the sake of like, as I write in the introduction, like the sake of sanity and for the sake of like this being a starting point and like a syllabus, just being like, you know, if you're somebody who is a reader and you haven't been paying attention and you want to think about what's going on, like here are 15 places to start thinking about fiction by women that's doing interesting things. And one other thing, if I may, now that I'm... We'll be able to say many other things. <laughs> one other thing is that like it, what was interesting to us, I think, as we sat and we started to talk about this, is that, you know, we were talking about this moment and the books that were coming up that felt new to us were by women, you know, and that also felt significant. It weren't, it wasn't just, I think this is right, right? Like it wasn't just that we were thinking about 15 writers we liked and what are they up to? It was like, well, what is the new stuff? And it became interesting to us that a lot of the, 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 the fiction that felt interesting and experimental and daring happened to be by a woman. All right. So without further ado, and then we will continue making many points, mm -hmm. um, let's talk about what the 15 books are. Jen, do you want to just start and list out the first eight? Okay. So the first eight listed alphabetically by author, I think. Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. The Essential Dykes to Watch Out For by Alison Bechdel. Outline by Rachel Cusk. The Neapolitan Novels by Elena Ferrante. American Innovations by Rivka Galchin. Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday. How Should a Person Be by Sheila Hetty. That eight. Carl, you can take Carl. The Vegetarian by Han Kang. The Flamethrowers by Rachel Kushner. Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Marie Machado. Department of Speculation by Jenny Ophel. Homesick for Another World by Otessa Moshveg. NW by Zadie Smith. Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward. And Mislaid by Nell Zink. All right. So I will say from the outset, I've read probably half of these, but so this is not a complete reaction. But the thing that strikes me is how different all of these books are from each other and how they are. And I'm curious if you if you wanted to 
represent those sort of different strains of fiction, or if you started out just thinking about what the books themselves were that 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 uh, that struck you. I mean, I, I think we started out with the with yeah, the books. Totally. I mean, that we was weren't trying to be politically correct or politic in any way. It because I just... think also, and I think also, one of the things that we wanted to avoid was being really too overdetermined yeah. with such a list. Where, and and one of the things, as Parl mentioned, and as she mentions in her introduction, is that you know we we really wanted to see this as a starting point, so people could look at it and you know. For some of the books that they haven't read, maybe go to them, but also think about the books that they would have liked to have, to have seen on the list and also think about that. Um, and we were really pleased, I think, by how varied it was. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that was important to us. Yeah. And there was consensus, right, from a pretty early stage it on on many of the books? weird consensus. I know. That was a little was weird. a little <laughs> strange. But I mean, but it was also a sign that there is, yeah. it was a sign that we were on to something, that yeah. there were a bunch of writers we were thinking about that felt new, that felt strange. And what was crazy is that, you know, when I went back and we were sort of making the list and I went and I read a a few of them again and they still feel crazy and they they still feel surprising. And some of them are a little bit older. Like Alison Bechdel's book came out when? 2006. And I'm still looking at it. And I was just like, this still feels to me like just bizarre and strange and opening up such new terrain. So, yeah. Did you deliberately choose books that were published only in the 21st century? Yes. So that was one one limitation yeah. that you said. We, we need, needed some constraints, I think, because okay. otherwise. Right. So the constraints yeah. were books by women yeah. published in the 21st century and that were doing something interesting and innovative in yeah. fiction and yeah. also fiction. Yeah. And, that, and yeah. that pretty much was it. And it was only later when I was sort of you know, looking again at the list and I was just like, oh, I wish we'd had this genre represented or that. And then I was like, no, but they're here, mm-hmm. you know? So if you can say like, where's something that acknowledges or thinks about sci-fi, you have the Machado book. You want to mm-hmm. look right. at something that plays with, you know, moments of horror and sort of like conventions of horror. You have the Han Kang book. Like, So there's a lot of stuff that I feel gets covered by this list without, as Jen said, being overdetermined and creating like a box and sort of like checking off of this genre or checking off of this particular. And and there's also a number of books that are pretty realist, which I think was also... Which are those? So Americana is one of them. The Neapolitan novels. Salvage the Bones. Salvage the Bones, sure. Like Asymmetry. There's stuff that... The Flamethrowers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would consider as part of that. Yeah, because um, I think the easy way to make a list like that is to be, like, to make a list like this is to be like, well, what's experimental? Right. And you're going to get right. a very particular kind yes. of prose style and concerns. And that's not, I think, what we wanted to do right. and what felt right, important exactly. to us. Was it hard to focus on, you know, the the book itself versus the author? I mean, there's some writers who we think of as as kind of being really interesting voices. And I'm wondering if you, if you sort of had that thing of like, well, we want to have let's say Zadie Smith, right. um, because she's written a number of books that have come out in the 21st century. Um, but which book is it going to be? Or was that not sort of didn't I work that way? I think it was way. more book determined. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. was really specific to the books. And I think that that was sort of the idea, at least when yeah, we were I talking agree. about I, it. Yeah. Behind all right. It. So anytime you come up with a list like this and you don't do it all by yourself, there are, you know, the, the if not the regrets, the like, oh, if only is, and I'm curious for each of you, like, Pearl, is there one book that you sort of wish, I wish I, I just could have also acknowledged this book? I mean, I think it was, it's it's an author, and I think Jen brought her up in our original discussion, and I really, um, yeah, Virginie Despont, I think, should be on this list somewhere. Like, it's really, like, that's the, the person I look at this, I'm like, there, she's, so she's based, she's this French writer, and she's sort of created this genre of her own that's kind of punk, kind of road novel, kind of comic book. It's a style that I don't see anybody else working with, apart revenge novel. Like, they're just these incredibly violent, funny, obscene books. And um, they're coming out in English. I think Feminist Press is is putting out a bunch of them. Their title is like Apocalypse Baby. She has her memoir, King Kong Theory. And that... It's, it's nourishing all of fiction. And I mm-hmm. feel like in the next couple of years, I feel like in 10, 15 years, you're going to see writers here, American writers that have been influenced by her and, and sort of like she's opened up this space. So I miss her on the list. You wrote an essay about her. I did write an essay about her last yeah. year. Yeah. I mean, do you know, do you know if American women writers or, or men are reading her? I think they are. I think that she and her partner, Paul Preciado, 
they've sort of like their work has been sort of finding people that like Maggie Nelson has become a champion. So a certain kind of writer that's interested in mashing up theory and stuff about the body and sort of very extreme sexuality and and just playfulness, I think, are, are finding her work and finding it to feel liberating. I mean, I have to say, in mm. terms of this list, I mean, I agree with mm. Parle. I think that that would have been an interesting and good addition. But for the most part, I'm pretty... <laughs> I sound so self-satisfied. No, 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 this is great. But I, I'm yeah. pretty happy with our list. Yeah. I mean, I know yeah. I know if I really think think about it and if I go back to our original brainstorming document, our, I'm our, sure... Our Google Doc of right, horrors. Our Google Doc of titles. <laughs> I'm sure that there will be authors and books yeah. where... I, you know, I do regret that we didn't get a chance to include them, but there's nobody on this list that I would actually take off. That's right. right in right. order to put somebody else on. Yeah. I mean, if we had room for 25 books or 30 books, that would have been different. No, and like, yeah. I think that's where we got to in our discussion. Yeah. We're like, I think one of us brought up a writer at like the 11th hour. Right. And, and everybody like, no, else is no, no, like, no. well, who's, who are you going <laughs> to take off? And none of us could. Right. Who is it? No, I'm not. Te- I'm not saying. Oh, I thought of Hilary Mantel as someone who was kind of one another sort of interesting person. Oh yeah, yeah. Not to. Oh yeah, we didn't think of her. <laughs> no, um, no, 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 we mention her. Don't we mention her in the I introduction? Think she's in yeah. the introduction, and yeah. she's definitely somebody who feels important. Yeah. But th- again, it was sort of like isolating this particular moment. Yeah. You know, like there are books like Jennifer Egan's Goon Squad with Hilary yeah. Mantel, like Marilyn Robinson, all these like these books that have opened up whole new terrains. But we wanted to in this moment of time, you know, mm-hmm. this day in 2018, say what felt. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that's, I mean, obviously, you know, we talked a lot about it, we discussed, but there is also there that sort of intuitive thing that comes into play, I think, when these lists get yeah. made and whittled down. So here's a dangerous political question to end with, which is, great. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> is there anything sort of inherently female about these books? Like, that, is there anything that makes them feel like these books could only have been written by women, or is there something about being a woman that infuses all of these books? I think I'll have a crack at it. Yeah, I was going to say, Carl, <laughs> would you like to have a I'll crack try. at it? I'll try. I mean, I, I think that when I think about what unites these really, really different books, for me, it feels like, and I feel like every good book does this or should do this, but they're talking back to a particular genre. You know, they're functioning in a particular space, whether it's Americana, this sort of classic immigrant novel, whether it's the Neapolitan novels is kind of very classic social realist novel, but they're they're really, they're a novel, but they're also kind of a critique of a genre and they're taking it forward. And I think that that kind of, um, that kind of, I don't think that that kind of energy is specifically female, but I think that this idea of of thinking about the stories that are told and how to retell those stories feels to me something that women and women writers have always have always done. I do think that a lot of these novels have some kind of social critique, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And the Neapolitan novels is a great uh, post-war novel, you know. Right. And I think some of them are interested in telling stories from the points of view of people that don't usually make it exactly. into the center of the book, that mm-hmm. aren't the protagonist. Or the story isn't the central relationship. For example, just bringing it back to Ferrante, because I think it's something that a lot of people have read, to situate a friendship at right. the center of these novels. Not a romance, not a family story even, but this friendship between two women. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to ask you about two specific books just because I'm really curious about how you think about them in that context. One is both of them because they're so personal, each of them. So I'm interested what how the social context and implications play out. One is Department of Speculation by Jenny Ophel and the other is Outline by Rachel Cusk because they're right. both such kind of very personal yes. mm-hmm. Well, stories. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the Ophel, I'll say that, you know, one of the things that she really does in that book, and it's, I mean, it's such a short book. It's mm-hmm. like maybe 150 pages. Yeah. It's tiny, but it really contains a lot. And she takes a subject that I think is often trivialized, although I think that that's changing precisely because of books like hers, mm-hmm. which is motherhood and domestic life. And she really sort of expands it and looks at how it touches on all aspects of, you know, a woman's experience in terms of not only the way she lives, but also the kinds of ambitions she might have. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the protagonist of the novel is somebody who at the beginning, you know, she talks about how she always wanted to be an art monster, mm-hmm. which I just think is such a sort of great way of putting it, that she had these ambitions to just sort of single-mindedly 
focus on her work. And, you know, she and her husband have a child and their their own lives together get up get upended. And the book really just sort of really makes an art of it in a mm-hmm. way that's not, as I said, trivializing, but also not pretentious. It's just there's something about it that's just incredibly powerful. And I think for a lot of women, especially whether they're mothers or not, but just to sort of see this experienced laid out in literature in such a way is really refreshing and just sort of opens up new ways of thinking about stuff. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And that, like, I think also I love, and I think a lot of people really responded to her evocation of early days of motherhood. Oh, yeah. And just even seeing that this is a topic worthy of literature in yes. this particular way felt very new. Oh, well, that's yes. something that Rachel Cusk actually has also written about in very in, much so. Very uh, much her her memoir. Work. Yeah. yeah. But outline is interesting, I think, too, in that and I'm I, I'm curious to hear what you said because because in that story you have a nameless narrator. It's part of a trilogy who she eventually gets in, named. I think in the second book, but it's told through all of these people who she is in conversation with. Right, and so yeah, we do know this woman by the stories that she's hearing and the stories initially at first that she's reporting to us, and mm-hmm. then in transit we start to understand a little bit more of who she is and what she's doing. And you know, but these are these are books again. Her books are books about a mother, an artist, um, a recently divorced woman. And she's sort of, you know, when we meet her in Outland, she's on this trip and she's sort of trying to start again. She's gathering her fragments again. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I mean, I think that in terms of like critique, I don't think the critique is explicit in Outline, but I do think that the critique of the novel feels very explicit in Outline and how we know somebody and how we know a character. And she seems to be kind of remaking what it's like to feel our way into another consciousness and into a consciousness that can perhaps feel very familiar to a lot of people. And again, may not feel like the kind of sturdy, noble heroine or hero to to stand at the center of this trilogy. But it's there. And I think secondly, if you look at all the stories that she does here, especially in Outline, a lot of them are about how power flows in relationships back and forward and how couples age together and family and domesticity. So there is another sort of interesting, subtle, subtle sort of commentary happening, I think, in Outline. All right. Parl, Jen, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Parl Siegel and Jen Salai are both critics for The New York Times. And together with Dwight Garner, they put together The New Vanguard, which is 15 books by women that are changing and shaping the way we read and write fiction in the 21st century. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.